0: Kelly Timms. I'm a senior at UGA and I'll be reading tonight's passage. Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the name of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your own way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore remain for marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on till they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter in law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Then they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest.
1: We are going to sing, Come Now, Fount of Every Blessing. Um, and what a wonderful hope and reminder that Jesus uh, seeks us when we're strangers, when we are wandering. When we leave the God that we love, um, he is faithful. Let us be a prayer as we are um, home and away from our usual routines that, that Jesus has sealed us and purchased us for his own. I To leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for.
2: There is a really, really famous tapestry in France. It's called the Bio Tapestry, and the reason it's famous is because of its size, and I guess its age too. It's 70 yards long from beginning to end, and it's about a thousand years old. The tapestry itself depicts the French conquest or the Norman conquest of England these battles that took place in 1066 and it's a progressive gradual spatial unveiling of that battle from its beginning to the french victory at the end and if you want to take in the whole story you've literally got to kind of start at the far left and painstakingly walk 70 yards to the other end of the tapestry to get the whole story if, you, uh, if you've ever been in the terminals in the Atlanta airport, like let's say you don't want to take the plane train and you're going to walk to kind of get some exercise before your flight, and if you've ever been in those tunnels with the moving sidewalks and all of the art exhibits or rainforest exhibits as you kind of are carried along, that's what the museum is like that holds the bio-tapestry. This long, narrow hallway Where the only way that you can see the whole tapestry is to walk alongside of it, paying attention to all the detail as you go. But, I mean, there's a ton of detail. It's a tapestry. And if you know anything about tapestries, they're one giant piece of fabric that has been painstakingly stitched together with millions and millions and millions strands of yarn. And so if you're going to take in the story and understand how each scene fits into this battle story, this conquest story, you have got to move really, really slow to pick up all of the details and understand uh, what's going on in the story. Now, if you move too slowly, or let's say you're you're really dialed into one particular scene, something catches your eye or you're interested in it, and that's all you see— you're not going to be able to understand what it is because you can't see the broader action that it takes place inside of. Or let's say that you're like a, you know, historical artifacts expert and you show up to the bio tapestry with your magnifying glass and you're like really zooming in and looking at individual strands of yarn and stitches. Even more so for you, you're going to get a really detailed, specific um, high definition view of one particular strand and it's going to look really, really ordinary, really unremarkable, but you're going to lack much of a vision for the magnificent, like the, just the beautiful tapestry as a whole. And so really the only way to take it in is if you have the time and the ability to walk three quarters of the length of a football field while paying attention to very minute detail. I think the book of Ruth is a person with a magnifying glass looking at one particular strand of yarn in this long tapestry of God's action in this world, in people's lives like you and me. And it's as if God pulls out one strand of yarn from that huge tapestry, one strand of yarn along the 70 yard story of redemption. And he puts it under a magnifying glass, and he says, look, it's you. It's just like you. Insignificant, unremarkable, largely unnoteworthy people who somehow, because of God's kindness and his interest and his grace, factor significantly into the story of redemption, into his story, that he's given you a place In this tapestry, you're on the wall, so to speak. You're a part of the magnificence. You're a part of the beauty because he stitched you into his rescue story through Jesus. Now, how do we see that? Because God tells us the story in the book of Ruth of a lady named Ruth, but there's other ladies too. Naomi, the older mother-in-law, and Orpah, and Boaz, and their husbands, and some other people involved in it. Now, here's the point, though. They're, They're remarkably unremarkable people. This isn't like, you know, Exodus or Genesis or Psalms where you see like a King David, he's royalty. Or you look at a priest or you look at the patriarch, Abraham, or a prophet and a priest like Moses. These are just random people. They were not significant until God picked up their lives, wove it into his story, and thereby made them significant. They're strands of ordinary yarn. And they were like you and I desperately prone to think there was very little meaning in their lives, very little long-lasting significance to their stories. And the reason why is because they live lifespans like you and I do of just a handful of decades and sometimes couldn't see the bigger picture of what God was doing with the specific stitches and threads of their life. Now, again, these are people that we wouldn't even know about had God not told us. They're significant because God told us about them and because he chose to work through them, not because there was anything remarkable about them ahead of time. I hope that's encouraging to you on the front end at least. You don't have to be a remarkable person. You don't have to have a spectacular personality. You don't have to have supernatural levels of discipline and ambition and and self-control to be used by God. Nor do you have to have monumental plans for God, for God to use you in his monumental plans for the world. I find that greatly encouraging to myself. I feel like a pretty unremarkable person. I bet you do too, oftentimes. God is not biased towards celebrities. If anything, he's biased towards the unremarkable. And he stitches all of us into this story, all of his people he gives a place in this story, and we see that in these particular people. But here's the thing. This isn't just a generic story about, hey, zoom out so you can see the big picture, and then God will make sense of the specific things he's doing in our life and in our world right now. That's not the point of the book of Ruth. Uh, this, the lives of the people kind of portrayed in this book it wasn't just that they were unremarkable, ordinary strands of yarn that, that God kind of wove into a spectacular story. It's that their lives were lives filled with shattered dreams. And so we're not asking, how does the random, ordinary strand of yarn fit into the big picture? We're asking, how does the oily, dirty, frayed-at-the-edges, worn-down piece of yarn factor into the greater tapestry. We should know that hard things are coming when the book of Ruth begins with this sentence that bridges the gap between Judges and Ruth. Chapter 1, verse 1, In the days when the Judges ruled, we already know something bad's coming, because in the days that the Judges ruled Israel, we know from the past few months, the people ran from God repeatedly. But in the days when the Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, A famine in the land. So we're in the midst of a 100-year pandemic right now. And a pandemic, as we have quickly learned, is a very rapidly developing situation. Two weeks ago, this wasn't even a factor in our lives here in America. This week, everything is shut down and our lives are inalterably changed. That's a quick turnaround. Famine is the opposite, though. Famine is a very, very, very slowly developing uh, situation, a slow spiral downward. And it is preceded by months and months and months of scarcity and worry and stockpiling and running through the groceries in your pantry and realizing the stores are rationing food and then realizing they're not even just rationing anymore. They're not even restocking it. How's my family going to eat? And uh, Naomi and her husband. make this gut-wrenching decision to leave the only home they've ever known, which is ironically in Bethlehem, or in Hebrew, Bethlehem, which means house of bread. The house of bread is without any bread. And so they are leaving their home to go to a place that wasn't just any old place. It's not, I mean, it would be more akin to you and your family, this pandemic getting so bad, so desperate, and you having such bleak hopes for survival that in a last minute decision, you and your family decide not to kind of go up to Canada and ride it out at a hotel. But you just your only refuge you can imagine is, you know, we got to get to kind of some rural part of northern Mexico in the middle of nowhere. That's all we got. That was Moab relative to Israel. And so they are loading up their two sons and Elimelech and Naomi and they're going to Moab. And they end up living there. They uh, Apparently he finds work or they find some way to sustain themselves. And that's life now. They're putting roots down and they're there for more than a decade by the end of it all. But immediately these dreams that Naomi had, and I say Naomi, I'm sure the rest of them had dreams, but the focus of this story at least in the beginning is on Naomi that the dreams that Naomi had were unraveling with lightning speed and brutal repetition this dream of a husband and dream of sons and heirs and people to take care of us down the road financial security and land and and business all of these dreams were becoming the victim of a harsh world Now, listen, here's a little bit of a cultural thing that we should pay attention to. In our day and age, perhaps, I mean, for for a woman, uh, maybe her dream might be a romantic partner of a husband or a guy. His dream for marriage might mainly relate to companionship and not wanting to be lonely or wanting to have a wife or a, a girl wanting to have a husband. But in this day and age, in a patriarchal society, at this point in Israel's history... A husband for a woman wasn't just a romantic partner. That might have been third or fourth down the list of things that a husband was to to a wife or a man to a woman. But he was, a husband was to a wife, her life insurance policy, her health insurance policy, her paycheck, her house, her retirement package, her social status, her access to the business world. He was everything to her. He was her access to children, to heirs, who would keep the family land and the family cattle or possessions in the family line. Her husband was everything. And it is when she is away from home and away from family and away from everything she's ever known that Naomi loses her husband. I don't know the situation. Was she by his bedside as he died? And with her husband's gasping breath, she sees her dreams gasping breaths. But maybe you say, but she's still got her boys. She's still got her sons, Malon and Chilion. There's hope. Because just like Jesus did for Mary, these boys could take over the family business. They could be the patriarchs of the family. They could keep the land in the family. They could provide security and protection for their wives and for Naomi. But then Naomi, the next few years of her life is every mother's worst nightmare Raised to the third power, not only has she already lost her husband and that sense of security and provision and protection, but now, one time after another, she sees police showing up at her house and knocking on her door with somber faces and saying, Ma'am, we're so sorry to tell you. And she just starts wailing and weeping because she knew a second she saw the car pull up to the curb exactly what they were going to get out and tell her. My sons have died. Can you feel the weight, the crushing weight of the shattered dreams of Naomi? For the third time, she is going to the funeral of her beloved. For the third time, she is burying another key component of her dream for her life. For how God had blessed her and given her these gifts. She buried gift after gift after gift after gift that God had given her. Shattered dreams, the way she thought life was going to go, kept going down to the grave. That is Naomi's plight. It is so heavy. She is grieving deeply because of these things. Some of you have bought and you're aware of the prayer guide or the prayer book uh, called Every Moment Holy. It's an amazing book. You should get it if you don't have it already. But there's a prayer in there, a liturgy. It's titled the death of a dream. And I'll bring it back up a few more uh, times in the moments ahead. But this is how this liturgy of this prayer for those experiencing the death of a dream begins. O Christ, in whom the final fulfillment of all hope is held secure. I bring to you now the weathered fragments of my former dreams. The broken pieces of my expectations. The torn patches of hopes worn thin the shards of some shattered image of life that I once thought it would be. And in my head, I know that you're sovereign even over this shattered dream, over my tears and my confusion and my disappointment. But I still feel in this moment as if I have been abandoned, as if you do not care that these hopes have collapsed into rubble. Naomi is a woman who has buried too many dreams for her to have much hope for the future. Well, we know this is true. It's scattered throughout her comments, her conversation with her daughters-in-law. She is still at a place where she's able to believe the gospel, as it were, the goodness of God, his covenant faithfulness, his love, his loyalty. She still believes that. We know that. That's scattered throughout her conversation too. She says to uh, to her daughters in law go return each of you to your mother 's houses. May the Lord may Yahweh, my God deal kindly with you, have covenantal love towards you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband so she 's able to believe this good news that God is faithful to them, but she struggles to see in her life that God is still faithful to her. She says down in later on in verse twelve. Turn back, my daughters. Don't come with me. Go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. And remember what a husband factors in the life of a Jewish woman at this time in this day and age. For I'm too old to have hope. My ship has sailed. That train has left the station. I had my shot and it didn't work out. And I don't have a future. For I'm too old to have a husband. And she says later on when she gets back to Bethlehem later, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Hebrew for bitter. Naomi is one who has buried a dream. Have you buried dreams? Have you buried relationships you thought would lead to marriage? Have you been summoned to the funeral of a friendship that you thought you'd carry with you all the way through college? Are you watching your parents' marriage die before your eyes? Are you watching your finances die before your eyes in this economy? Do people keep showing up on your doorstep telling you that another hope, another dream has no hope of coming true? And if you can relate to that, and I think all of us can, what do you do and how do you respond? Because life isn't just about these things happening to us, but the clock still ticks and life goes on and we must respond, we must respond, we must move forward. So how have you responded to the death of your dreams, to the shattering of these things that you looked to with almost an assumed or expected hope that it would come to fruition? How have you responded? We already saw how Naomi responded, verse 13 Towards the latter part of it, she says, Things are far more bitter for me, my daughters, than for you, because the Lord Yahweh himself has raised his fist against me. Does the data of your life lead you to conclude that God has switched teams? And now, every day, when you wake up and run out onto the field of your life, he is the Tom Brady on the opposing teams. He is the Tom Brady of the opposing team the star quarterback that's running up the score against you as you sweat and struggle and the gap between where you are and where the other team is only grows. You'd be normal if that is a piece of the way that you respond. If you struggle with that, if you lament and wail and weep and slide towards bitterness, slide towards thinking or wondering, is God against me? Because we see it in Naomi. But is that all that there is in our lives? Is that all there is in this story? The good news is that the book of Ruth is not just a book of tragedy. And a book of shattered dreams and buried hopes. But the story is more textured and complex than that. And more hopeful too. Back to that prayer I mentioned earlier, every moment holy in the death of a dream. The prayer goes on, another stanza. It had asked the question in the previous stanza, has God abandoned me? Does he not care that these hopes have collapsed into rubble? And it continues, and yet I know this is not so. You are the sovereign of my sorrow. You, God, apprehend a wider sweep with wiser eyes than mine. In my history, my history, my life, bears the fingerprints of grace. You were always faithful, though I couldn't always trace quick evidence of your presence in my pain, yet you did remain at work, lurking in the wings, sifting all my splinterings for bright embers that might be breathed into more eternal dreams. We can relate to that prayer. It's almost a cliche that our Some of God's sweetest mercies to us have been packaged in some of our greatest heartaches. People will say the valley is where I grow the most instead of the mountaintop. But where do we see this in the passage at hand? And where do we see it in our own lives? Well, it's a struggle because as this prayer said, I know this is not so. But I feel that it is. And I think Naomi was in that place too. She knows that God is faithful, but she may not feel that God is faithful. And one of the reasons I think this tension exists in all of our lives, this tension between our shattered dreams but our hope not shattering, and our confidence in God not shattering, and suffering the same fate of our our dreams. The reason there's a tension there is because I think we have an expectation that we to, to, to be able to believe that God is at work, we have to see him at work and we have to understand how he's working and how he's going to fix this and how he's going to get it through us. And I think this, this particular story and God through Ruth asks us the question, can you let go of the demand to have to understand every detail of your life? And perhaps he asks us in kindness, the tone of a father, son or daughter, must you understand every rationale behind each of my actions? Or can you trust me in the absence of explanation? Imagine this scenario. Let's get lighthearted for a second. This is heavy stuff. Imagine you're on the set of a movie. You're like a, I don't know, like a sound guy or something or a lighting person. And you're watching this action take place on a movie set. And the director says, action. And almost every single line, every single scene, the lead actor says, not the director, the lead actor says, cut, 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 shut everything down, shut everything down. And you see him and he runs over to the director and they have a sidebar every time. And he says to the director, why this line? This doesn't make sense. Don't you think this line would be better? Or I'm not even sure that the scenery that you've got back here really fits what we're trying to go for here. And how about a different setting and maybe some different co-actors? If this went on and on and you're witnessing this dynamic, what would you conclude about the relationship between the director and the actor? Probably that the actor thinks the director's an idiot. Or the actor assumes that he or she would be directing this action on camera much better than this director. And I think perhaps we should be allowed to ask ourselves the questions, do I do that with God? If I consider myself to be, you know, one of the actors in my story, let's say you have some humility and you realize you're not even the main actor in your story, he is, but you say, okay, I'm a supporting actor, but... You find yourself running over to the director's chair continually. Lord, why did you do this? Why didn't this happen? Why did I get this grade? Why did graduation get canceled? Why is summer conference not happening? Why did I break up? Why did I get sick? Why did my dad lose his job? And you continue to, we, we continue to quibble with him about all the details and demand answers to why, why, why. Perhaps there's a conclusion in there, too, that we have a a, a deep degree of mistrust about him. Perhaps we have, um, I don't know, a sense that we would do things much better. And uh, I think there's a humility that comes when we awaken to the complexity and the demandingness And the caliber of real life, real life comes at us at 100 miles an hour, and it splatters on our windshield, and it hurts us, and it confuses us, and it tangles us up. And it raises in you this humble question of, what do I even know, though? In the final analysis, what do I really even know about any of this stuff, or how to manage my life, or what scene or setting or characters should belong here? And so in what ways do we, do you and I, out of a mistrust of God or an unfamiliarity with his fatherly character, insist on being both actor in our story and author of our story? And friends, I ask these questions in gentleness because they're questions that that weigh on me too. Must we know why the one you thought you would marry broke up with you to be okay? Okay. Must you know the answer to that to be okay? Or would it be possible to trust your father even when you don't know? Do you, to be okay, to move forward, must you exhaustively understand why there was one less opening in that house full of best friends next year that you got accidentally left out of? Can you move on after that dream has shattered, trusting that God has seen you, remembered you, and will provide for you. Now, we need to be careful here, because what what we're taking issue with right now is this demand or assumption that we should understand all things and get the answers to God's mysterious movings, and the assumption that we can't be okay, we can't move on, we can't have hope, we can't believe unless we know all the answers. That's what we're picking at we're not saying that we're supposed to, in the face of our shattered dreams, in the face of the death of loved ones, like husbands and sons, in the loss of precious things, we're not saying that you look at that and you say, well, just trust God. Don't you know he's sovereign? There must be a good way that he's going to work something out of this, or he's, he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We don't... Look at the face of our shattered dreams and throw cliches and platitudes at them, even if those cliches are true. It is true that God is sovereign. It is true that he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. But when we rush in and say, I see the dark cloud you're, you're just undone over. I see the lament that you're in, the weeping, the disappointment, the despair. But guess what? Every dark cloud has a silver lining. Or there's a bright side to every disappointment. We don't rush in and say that. And you don't see Naomi, Ruth, or Orpah doing that either. In the face of their disappointment, in the face of the shattered dreams, these women who are not emotionally weak, they are giants. And they are examples of Christian faith. They come undone. They lift their voices, the text says, repeatedly. They wept again. Several verses later, perhaps hours or days later in the action, they wept again, they wept again, they lifted up their voices together, and they wailed. In the fa- and this is what we were talking about last week in Psalm 73. Faith, biblical faith, spirit-breathed Christian faith, sees both near vision and far vision simultaneously. It, lo- it reacts to the immediate circumstances, and so when you get punched into the gut... It gasps for air. When you experience the shattering of a dream, it it grieves, it cries. When you experience something fearful, it shakes in in fear. But at the same time or soon after, it gets its bearings again in the far-sighted horizon. That God is God. That He is covenantal. That He loves me because He said He never would stop loving me. And we see in these giants of the faith this beautiful, feeling, adaptive, multifaceted faith responding to the death of their dreams and at the same time holding on to the hope of their God. And friends, there is so much for us to emulate and to follow in this example that they set for us. I love it. It's so human. The reason that they're able to persist, you could put it this way, is that they're in a stanza of suffering, but they know that a chorus of restoration is coming. I don't know if you've ever heard some kinds of songs. It just feels like the stanza goes on forever. And you're like, when are we going to get back to the chorus, the buoyant chorus, the joyful chorus, the happy chorus? Life is like one slow, drawn out song. And there are stanzas and there are choruses. And these women are stuck in a stanza, but they know that a chorus, they know that gospel, they know that covenant, they know that goodness, they know that love is coming back. They just don't know how or when. But there are glimmers of it because in verse 6, something changes and they've been in... Moab for 10 years, and Naomi met these two women, uh, Ruth and Orpah, in in Moab, and all of a sudden they get word that the famine is ending, and and she doesn't say, the economy got better, or they're hiring again, or my uncle reached out and said, hey, you know, the kids moved out, y'all can stay in our guest room. She said, God has been kind, he has visited, he is present with, he has remembered his people, heard the cries of his people, he has fed his people. Naomi has this still soft-hearted faith and expectation that God is still God, even though she weeps and struggles in her own faith, in her own circumstances. And so she sees that, and that is what precipitates this whole, u turn and let's go back now to Bethlehem. But when she does, her daughters-in-law say, well, we're going to go with you. And they end up going together. And then at some point on the journey, Naomi says, you can't go with me. You can't. You can't go with me. And Naomi does her level best to talk them out of it. And Naomi, in doing this, is loving Ruth and Orpah. She says as much. She doesn't want... the the death of dreams almost to kind of rub off on them. She doesn't want her sorrow and her despair to become their sorrow and their despair. And she doesn't want her dead-end future to become their dead-end future, her vulnerability and exposure to the chaotic elements of life to now become their exposure and their weakness. She wants what is best for her daughters-in-law, even though it means her loss, her loss of deep love and companionship with two women who've become like daughters to her. She would rather they have a bright future and her have a bleak future than for them to join her on her journey back home to Bethlehem and to share in her dark days ahead. But what Naomi had not known and and did not see and what we struggle to see is that in our darkest days, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fighting for us, are working for us. And like the Corps of Engineers are just always there engineering, building, constructing a way back, a way to hope, a way to life again. And what Naomi did not know is that God had already smuggled into her life right in front of her face the greatest blessing she would ever know. And I'm talking not just like spiritual blessings, like I'm going to give you a sense of peace or comfort, but literal, tangible, incarnated blessings. Daughters, friends, companions, sisters in the trenches. She didn't know that her daughters-in-law were going to be these giants in her life. And in Eastern culture at that time, daughters-in-law were kind of one step above slaves. It's like... You know, we joke about daughters-in-law and mothers-in-law today about the tension in that relationship. Back then, it was like your mother-in-law was your boss. But these two daughters wanted to go with Naomi. These three ladies loved each other. They wanted to be with each other, even though it was going to cost each of them immensely. And Naomi tries to resist it. But God, in his sovereignty, nudges Ruth to push and push and push and push And he puts this desire in Ruth to go with Naomi wherever she goes, no matter what it costs, no matter what it means. And so Ruth gets to come with her. Orpah kisses her, weeps with her, and says goodbye and goes back to Moab. Ruth goes to Bethlehem with Naomi. And in doing so, that will be kind of the beginning of the resurrection of Naomi's dreams at the hands of a kind and gracious God. And here's the thing, Uh, William uh, Cooper, I've talked about this before, but he was the best friend of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, and I Ask the Lord, and all these other things. William Cooper struggled with debilitating depression most of his life, and as a last-ditch effort to try to leash William Cooper, his best friend, to Jesus and keep him from spiraling into despair, John Newton and and William Cooper kind of co-launched this project called the Alney Street Hymnal, and they decided to write Hymns to Jesus, songs of redemption. And Newton was hoping that this would find a way to smuggle grace into Cooper's heart, and it worked because one of his greatest hymns that William Cooper, in his depression, wrote was called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And one of the stanzas in that hymn says this His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. I thought that stanza just summarizes this, of Ruth's and Naomi's life so well, but also yours and mine. There are so many buds that are bitter right now, and they're hard, and they're not ripe. But they're already in your life. And what you and I don't know is which of these bitter buds, these hard and immovable buds, over time will soften and sweeten and ripen and become the gateways of God's resurrection breath into your life. That these people that he's already put around you or these resources or churches or books or new habits that he's woven into you will be your saving graces. Around the blind corners you can't yet see around. Ruth was a saving grace to Naomi. Ruth was a lifeline to Naomi. Ruth was an incarnation of God's love to Naomi. And that's where I want us to end tonight. There is so much more to talk about in this passage, but we have another few weeks to get to come back and revisit the way that Ruth and Naomi loved each other and Boaz loved them and they loved him. But tonight I just want to leave you with a simple depiction of how Ruth and Naomi loved each other. They loved each other with a covenantal love. In Hebrew, it's called hesed love. And covenantal love is fundamentally different than love as we know it in Western culture. Because when we say love, what we really mean or have experienced in our lives is casual love. Casual love is fundamentally different than covenantal love in the following ways. Casual love is the love of crushes and fads. It's something you kind of automatically fall into or fall out of it's flighty, it's fickle, it's flaky. Casual love acts on feelings. It's an autopilot kind of love. It's something that just captures you and magnetically pulls you into it. But once that magnetic pull is gone that kind of effortlessly pulls you toward another person, once the once the thrill is gone, you fall away. And casual love is a happiness-oriented love. It's a parasitic love. It's a I like you because you make me feel good. And I'll stop liking you when you stop making me feel good. But covenantal love, hesed love, is cut from entirely different cloth. And covenantal love isn't just the love that Ruth and Naomi show towards each other. It's the love that Jesus shows towards his people. Hesed love, steadfast covenantal love. Covenantal love is a committed, stubborn, unflinching love. Paul Miller, who's written a remarkable book um, called A Loving Life, uh, calls this a one-way love, a love without an exit strategy. Of course, we don't want to make it sound antiseptic. Of course, it feels affection and delights in the other person, but it isn't captive to feelings, and it's capable of loving even when the person isn't quite delightful at all. Unlike casual love that acts only on feeling, covenantal love acts on commitment, And so, at the end of the day, it's a sacrificial love. Casual love says, I will go with you as long as I like the journey, as long as I like you, and then I'll start to politely distance myself from you and we'll grow apart. Covenantal love says what Ruth says to Naomi. When Naomi tries to part with her and Ruth won't have anything to do with it. And she says, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. That, brothers and sisters, is covenantal love. It is love that has burned the bridge, the way of exit. It is love that is that has willingly, voluntarily trapped itself with you. It is love that sees you struggling in the pit of tar and jumps in the tar with you, trapped and unwilling to escape as long as you are there. Covenantal love makes three things about your future very certain, that the person will be there with you, that they'll be by your side, and that they're not going to go anywhere. And friends, as we close... Do you see all the glimmers in this story that show us how Jesus loves us? Do you think that God loves you with kind of an on-again, off-again, casual love? One foot in, one foot out, propping, the, uh, propping open the exit door just in case you don't turn out to be as fantastic as you'd promised to be at the front end. Does he only feel affection for you when you've pleased him? is God, in a sense, kind of rehearsing the breakup speech in the back of his head every time he's around you, just tolerating you. I don't think this is going to work out. doesn't seem like it's working for either of us. Let's just kind of, let's just, you know, have some distance between us. Well, we know that can't be true. Look, it's not that Ruth and Naomi, sorry, it's not that like Jesus later on in history loves like his grandmother Ruth and her Mother-in-law, Naomi. It's that Ruth and Naomi love like Jesus, their great-grandson, who would come and redeem the whole world later and love with excellence, covenantally. It's like Tom Hanks in the movie, It's a Wonderful Day in the Neighborhood. It's not that, you know, um, Mr. Rogers loved and was compassionate like Tom Hanks. No, Tom Hanks was playing the role Of Mr. Rogers, the real Mr. Rogers, who really in real life was compassionate and loving. Tom Hanks just did a phenomenal job uh, depicting and showing what kind of love Mr. Rogers had. In the same way with Ruth and Naomi, or any person you've been loved well by. They played the role well, but all they did is point back to Jesus who loved stubbornly, with a one-way commitment to you, with no exit strategy, with a sense of... Dedication to his people that wherever you go, I will go. Whatever burdens are your burdens will now become my burdens. Whatever mistakes you must pay for, now I will pay for your mistakes. That is covenantal love. And it is a love that prioritizes your well-being at his expense. It is that covenantal love of Jesus for his people that caused Not just, you know, a similar love in Naomi that said, I know I want you to come to Bethlehem with me. I know you're my daughters. I know I love you like my own daughters, but go for your own benefit. And she was willing to part with something good for her for the sake of others. But Jesus parted with something infinitely more precious than that. For your sake. In his last days, even last hours, he gives away his last remaining treasure, which is fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. Not because he desired to, but because for your sake he had to. Our moving up the ladder meant Jesus moving down the ladder. Your advancement towards life meant Jesus' decline and spiraling away from life. And our thriving meant his decay. And your head being lifted out of the churning white water meant that his head drowned beneath them. Friends, this book of Ruth is the gospel and it points to the gospel and it points to your God who, though in the midst of a life filled with shattered dreams, filled with blind curves that we can't yet peek around and see how he is going to bring a bud to a blossom to ripe, to ripe fruit. It shows us that he is for you and he is not against you, but he is on your side, that the famine will end, that he will restore the food. That he will resurrect the dreams and then some. And that he will give himself to you in an infinitely greater way than Ruth gave herself to Naomi or Naomi to Ruth. We pick up the story next week as we see this Savior, this God love us like this. As we see it depicted in the lives of these women. And a man will meet next week named Boaz. Let me pray. Father, thank you for loving us this way. Thank you that this is reality and this is truth. We need it. Oh, we need it. Let us see in the lives of these people, these ordinary, unremarkable people, extraordinary, remarkable significance and magnificence. Our lives are also these bland strands of yarn that you have woven into the redemptive tapestry of Jesus. And so remind us that we have significance because we're connected to him. That our dreams, though shattered, will be resurrected in him. And that he loves us with a stubborn love. We pray this in your name and his name. Amen.